Welcome to Between the Lines, everyone. Um, today, we're going to be discussing the medieval period, or as I've come to know it, the Dark Ages. And I think this is of interest to anyone in education, because if you're interested in education, I think you're interested in what ideas and principles lead to human flourishing. And if, like me, you don't believe that civilization and flourishing are inevitable, then it's important to look at what ideas and principles lead to the kind of flourishing we've had. I look at the kind of civilization we're in as an achievement. Um, it's an achievement in the history of humanity. And I think by looking at this period of time, we can start to see what ideas led to the kinds of revolutions in science and industry and political thought that have created the civilization around us. And I hope today that we'll be able to te tease out some of the nuance, explore this topic in more detail. And I'm super honored to have with us Dr. Andrew Seeley to talk about the subject. Uh, Dr. Seeley is the co-founder and president of Boethius Institute. He spent three decades as a tutor at Thomas Aquinas College in California. I could probably spend the rest of this podcast just recounting his accolades and achievements, uh, but then we wouldn't have time for our subject. One thing that is relevant, though, is he has a PhD in medieval studies from the University of Toronto, so it makes him an excellent person to educate Emily and me on this subject. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. So I want to explore this period of time. Um, I'll give you just like my brief narrative that I have in my head that we can use as like a foil for our conversation. But I kind of see the period that I call the Dark Ages as, you know, fall of Rome, rise of Christianity. Then you have the reintroduction of Aristotle uh, in 12th, 13th centuries. Then you have this renaissance that happens as a result of Thomas Aquinas integrating Aristotle uh, into Christian thought. And then you have subsequently the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, revolutions in political thought. So that's my like 10,000 foot overly simplistic <laughs> view of human history. Um, and I'm very curious to hear your perspective on that history, what role Christianity and Aristotle played in um, the revolutions that happened, whether you even see them as drastic changes or natural progressions. Um, now, maybe to start, you could help us orient ourselves around just time frames that we're talking about. When is this period when we refer to the middle mid medieval times? Um, it's generally considered to be from about 476, which was when um, the last Roman emperor was deposed by a Germanic king, um, and um, and then it uh, is considered to have come to an end sometime in the middle of the 15th century uh, with the rise of the Renaissance, particularly in Italy. So if I go to your, we take that, um, and and it's important to realize that this is these are significant dates for Western Europe. Um, in the East, there was no significant cultural and civilizational collapse. So in um, in the areas of the Byzantine portion, the Eastern portion of the Roman Empire, that continued as a, as a uh, that had a continuous cultural life, uh, civilizational life, all the way until the end of, um, into the 15th century when it was captured by the, um, uh, by the Turks. Yeah. Now, when you talk about the Eastern Empire, where geographic, like modern day times, where is that? Um, That's it, Turkey uh, and 
so the the Roman Empire was divided, always was kind of divided into the Greek speaking and the Latin speaking portions of it. Um, it would kind of, if you go, I think just on the other side of the Adriatic Sea, all of that part that we would consider Eastern Europe today, uh, and then around down into um, the middle of uh, uh, the Palestinian area uh, along the Mediterranean coast there, uh, and then in, even into the northern, nor, uh, to Egypt, that side of it. That was kind of all the, um, the eastern part of the empire. Okay, so when we're talking about the medieval period, we're mostly talking about Western Europe, all right? Um, that part of the Roman Empire and what happened. It's a very different story to talk about the Western Roman Empire compared to the Eastern Roman Empire. Sure. Uh, well, let's focus on Western then. Okay. Um, so maybe we'll start with um, the fall of Rome. And it's a, I think what makes this story a little complicated is that, you know, you have Christianity rising a before the Roman Empire falls and, mm -hmm. um, uh, you have the barbarians at the gate and um what what do you see is happening after rome falls what 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 chronologically happens and um you know maybe to orient it a little bit in terms of the broader conversation i know that you have boethius around this time mm -hmm. who sees some writing on the wall he sees a, a form of darkness coming uh, and he makes an effort to preserve uh greek thought and so what was the darkness he saw and, and how do you view that in relationship to uh, Christianity and, and what's to come in Europe? Yeah. So um, let me just uh, make a comment about Christianity and how, and um, just historically how this fits in. But I should say, I'm not a historian. I am, I've, uh, I'm very familiar with medieval culture, but I, f I focused on medieval thought, uh, though I learned a lot about medieval culture along the way. So um the but Christianity was officially accepted um, uh, in the beginning of the 300s by Constantine, so that was 150 years before the what's considered the fall of of, of the Roman Empire in the West, uh, and it became the official religion of the empire uh, in about 388, I believe. Um, so that was also a century before that, and and. It had Christ, uh, the Christian Roman Empire, that that whole Byzantine Empire was a Christian Roman Empire until the end, uh, until the end in the 15th century. So um, uh, Christ, Christianity did not arise with the fall of the uh, fall of the Western Empire. Um, what happened, uh, and that that kind of 476 date is, uh, it's a you know it's a, something that's helpful. <laughs> To fix as, as a starting point, but really it was the it was part in a part of a kind of continuum of cultural and civilizational collapse that um, uh, was picking up speed throughout the fifth century. So starting in the 400s, um, Saint Augustine was uh, very many people were disturbed in about 410 or 412 when the uh, um, I think the Goths sacked Rome and they were, you know, shocked that that sort of thing could happen. You had a gradual neglect, uh, an inability to sustain the urban civilization that uh, really um, was part and parcel of the Roman Empire. Um, they weren't able to um, 
continue to sort of effectively collect taxes, repair the repair the roads, repair, um, keep up the buildings. Um, the uh, the school system collapsed. Um, so I don't know if you've uh, been in any of the inner cities uh, in America, <laughs> but sometimes you see and you drive through uh, some of the inner cities that once were you know once were beautiful places and even um, the the chic places to be are you know they're they're people aren't keeping them keeping them up anymore the windows are broken and uh roads are terrible um that kind of thing if it continues you know we'll be in a similar situation to what was happening uh at the end of the roman empire in the west so uh, boethius and also his uh um contemporary and i think a cousin cassiodorus uh uh, people, uh, St. Benedict, uh, Gregory the Pope, they were, um, they were living in a time when Rome was not functioning anymore as a city. And in fact, most of the cities in the West were um, unable to maintain themselves. So um, they saw, people like Boethius saw that well, we don't have teachers anymore. We can't, we can't form sufficient teachers. We don't have the school system that was in place um what can we and you know violence there were barbarian invasions there were different kinds of violence that were was going unchecked um, at the time uh with no hope of anything turning around really i guess i shouldn't say that they did hope that the byzantine empire well the emperor hmm. in the east would be able to reassert his authority in the west which he did for a time in the sixth century justinian did that uh, but it wasn't lasting and um so then they were just what can we what can we pass on what can we preserve in this how can we continue to educate and maintain our our culture in the face of all of this being dissolved around us right so kind of to summarize what i hear is that prior to uh, i've heard this argument made before too that you know prior to to christianity even Rome is on this path to decline, um, and not certainly prior by to Christianity, but prior to Christendom, Christendom. Um, but certainly, um, you know, it's it's not this all of a sudden moment. There is this decline of civilization that that is occurring, or of Rome mm -hmm. that's occurring, mm -hmm. and you know, somebody like Boethius can see this, see this occurring, um, and, and seek to preserve preserve what they have. Um, so that's the context we're in at the fall fall of Rome. Um, and maybe tell us a little bit about what happens, you know, in the aftermath of of the fall of Rome or, or how does it like what's the um, climax of that and, and what happens? Well, you have, um, I guess, significant social changes. Um, you no longer have cities and city life for the most. You don't have you don't have that. You have. Um, largely you have sort of the uh, landed properties where, you know, you have some sort of chieftain or military leader who can maintain some semblance of peace there. And they, uh, they oversee a place where there are um, sort of the inheritance, the, the slaves, the slavery that, you know, increasingly um, come to dominate Roman economy. I think uh, that ends up, becoming um the so the sort of the, the 
the basis of the social structure to the extent they had it would have been uh, serfs um, who are who are um, who have to work the land and then military a military order that's a, able to protect that uh, that area um, and, or to some extent uh, and then you have growing up in that um, Benedictine monasteries as centers of continued learning and culture, um, uh, agricultural, generally agricultural success to the extent that they could have, they could have peace maintained. And they were independent of the, you know, largely independent of the warlords. Um, that is that is that helpful? Yeah. And one thing I'm also curious about is what role does Christianity play in this? Uh, I, is it safe to assume that the quote unquote barbarians that, sack Rome are not Christians. Um, as Rome falls, how does Christianity ascend in Europe? Um, is it co-opted by these barbarians as a tool? What what does that look like? Yeah, it's a pretty complicated. Um, I think it's a pretty complicated history. But what is important, I think, for especially the way that you were thinking, you, you said you, you've come into this conversation thinking about the, the Dark Ages, is that <laughs> that period... Um, of say sixth uh, century AD to about a thousand AD, where there's not much happening culturally and intellectually, what is going on is um, a lot of continued learning, high end as high end learning as they can as they could uh, manage uh, in that sort of isolated situation, uh, learning based upon the both the roman classics the greek classics and the um and the scriptures and the patristic writings and but at the same time there's uh an inculturation of the barbarian the barbarians who had come to be the dominant power so um there was a, a cultural blending and melding uh, of the ancient classics classical world the Christian, ancient Christian world, and then the new barbarian, largely Germanic tribes and their traditions, uh, their traditions of, of law and uh, so and society. So that's that's uh, basically they're shaping Christendom in that period. Uh, it's not a time where you find a lot of great classic writings um there are certainly some but you do find this enormous cultural process that's mm. going on throughout that period andrew could i ask you to expound a little bit on the distinction you made between christendom and christianity yeah so when you talk about people talk about christendom christendom is a name that's given to um to the post empire uh post-empire Western Europe, where um, politically there was no single uh, imp uh, imperial authority, uh, though there, was, there did continue to be a Holy Roman Emperor, um, or at least it was revived, uh, and a Holy Roman Empire. The, there was a, always sort of that ideal. But, um, but they actually were politically separate for the most part. The, you, know, you had the, uh, your rulers in France, uh, in England, uh, among you know uh, different Germanic tribes, 
Italy, uh, Italy had its own many different rulers, including the Papal States. So there's no political unity, but still there was a religious and cultural unity. And that's what's usually named as Christendom. Um, that's sort of uh, considered as a, this is the, the realm where Christ rules, even though politically there's no one, there's no unity. Like there was in Byzantium, Byzantium continued to have, uh, it was fully Christian, but it also was had an imperial rule that extended over all of those different lands. So that's, uh, that's what people tend to mean by Christendom, I think. Got it. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. And, and so I think what you're also saying here is, as I suspected, it's, it's a little bit more complex than the oversimplified narrative I presented. You have several forces at work. You have Christianity and Christian thought. You have the classics still available, though in a more limited sense than they were maybe at the height of Roman Greece. And you also have this cultural force, which is um, the Germanic tribes and, and the, the peoples of Europe all kind of melting together. Um, certainly it's different than what was in Rome and Greece and the, and the intellectual rigor that they had and way they were thinking. Uh, but there's this period of time where it's just changing and something mm -hmm. else needs to emerge. Is that a good summary? I think so. Let me add this, that, um, it was a period where the mind was active, but it was active as learning. Um, that um, you know, uh, the 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 educational process was focused on just learning to read well and deeply in the wisdom that they had been able to preserve from uh, from the uh, flourishing em uh, empire days. So. Um, there wasn't a lot of new thought that was going on, though it was it, there were there were there was the beginnings of it. But um, there, that didn't mean the mind wasn't active. It was mm. active in learning and in expressing um, the learning in um, beautiful churches, in in music and liturgy, uh, in, in trying to express it in agricultural success. Uh, that would allow, you know, that would allow a, a rebuilding economically that's necessary for uh, for a flourishing civilization. Um, how to uh, how to integrate Germanic law and Roman law? Um, how to think well about that? Those those were that was what the mind was actively considering, and successfully bringing that about, particularly after the um, after the Viking. Viking raids and his and uh, Islamic raids were able to uh, came to an end in the um, in the 10th century. Uh, then they finally gained the peace and stability enough for all of this cultural activity that had been going on to grow. So I think what you're saying is, outside of just these cultural forces, there were also uh, external forces. Uh, preventing maybe some stability needed to flourish. That it's yes, not necessarily we, that there were certain ideas preventing them. Only it was that you know if, if you're being raided and attacked and pillaged, it's a little hard to to create yeah, a stable civilization. The, the raids would come from the sea, so they came from the north from the Vikings. They came from the south from from Islam. So if you lived anywhere near the coast, you were host. You know, 
Right. So that meant you had to you had to stay away from the coast, which meant that uh, that serious trade couldn't take place. Mm. And they mm. were cut okay, off that way from the Eastern Empire. They were not able to maintain at least extensive trade lines with the Eastern Empire, even though they maintained an ideal of the of the the one Roman Empire that uh, whose emperor was in the East. Mm. Now, let me ask this too, more at a philosophical level, um, your perspective on Christianity, because I see this period as also um, turning away from a this-worldliness type philosophy and more to um, to an otherworldly or supernatural world um, or co contemplative that way. Is that a fair assessment of this time? Are, are, I, I kind of see it as... Um, the question shouldn't be even about flourishing. The question should be about um, about religion, about contemplating religion, but not necessarily about flourishing in this world. Uh, what would you say about that? Is that an unfair um, thing to project onto that time? Um, there's truth in that. I think that that um, I mean that 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 turning. <laughs> happened began to happen in the middle of the flourishing roman empire um as people found out you know realized that uh economic and political success uh did not bring any uh satisfaction spiritually mm. so um there was there began in the third century or so the uh the development of monasticism where very wealthy and successful and talented individuals said, tell with this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's nothing here for me. I'm miserable. Um, uh, I hate it. I'm going to go and live, live for God in the desert. <laughs> so um, that was where a lot of uh, very, like the, the bold people, the bold young men and women gave themselves over to that uh, starting in the third century, picking up steam in the West, in the, in the fourth century um so then the uh i think that as you came into the period we're talking about the there was there wasn't even a a shimmering there wasn't even a, gl a glamour right. <laughs> in terms of the, the world like there's nothing there so people who who wanted more went to the monasteries and joined the monasteries um but and then that was a life that was, you know, preparing themselves, well, worshiping God here and preparing themselves for uh, the next life. Um, but that didn't mean they uh, turned away from needs and trying to to help others, help those in need. Um, to me, that was certainly an important part of Christianity. It's always been what we call the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. So taking care of people's health, you know, providing hospitality. The, the Benedictine monasteries were great centers of hospitality. What travel existed probably existed because they could go from monastery to monastery and and be taken care of. There weren't any inns or anything like that, um, or not not very many. So, mm. uh, you know, they had a foot in this world, right. but their their spiritual longing was, was for the next. And, and to your point, though, I mean, you also have the Stoics, right? Um, within mm -hmm. Rome, but, but generally yep. this, as the empire starts to decline um, and, and 
the maybe you could say the decadence of Rome at its peak not providing that satisfaction. And then you start to sprinkle in as you go along raids from barbarians, also this fear. I can only imagine people looking for um, alternatives or other ideas that might bring them some comfort. Mm-hmm. And so it's, th- this well, trend is happening. Yeah, not just comfort, but actually they would go where they would be doing beautiful and good things. They would be learning Latin. They would be, <laughs> they would be out, they would be learning to chant. They would be participating in building beautiful churches. So it wasn't just comfort. It was, this is, this is the great, this is where great human activity is going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, not just, this isn't working and, and we'll, turn away from it altogether, but also a group pursuing an alternative, a, a, a good, plausible alternative. Yeah, something uh, you can, so Bernard of Clairvaux is a, I mean, a great story. He was a, a very, um, very talented and winning uh, young man, a knight who, um, who just, I can't remember exactly what was, what led to him. But he, he really, he said, no, I'm going to pour, I need to pour my enormous gifts into uh, a complete reforming of monastic life. So we do this hardcore, right? So he helped to found the um, the Cistercian order, which was a Benedictine order, but much more rigorous. And then he brought, he got, he was so excited about it that he brought his whole, like family members, uncles and, and whatnot. They all came with him. Uh, and then he was, uh, he helped to spurn, not only to help found this one order, but to spread it to, you know, 50 or 60 different houses, I hope I'm not exaggerating, within his lifetime. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, and he, he aroused and enthused other people about the life that he was leading. Mm. And when was he, when was he alive? Uh, he was 12th century. Okay, so a little further along. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a good segue then, progressing kind of forward in time. So we have this period just to kind of reorient us. Um we have the fall of the, the Roman Empire. We have this period of melding between mm-hmm. uh, the classical world, Christian thought, and uh, Germanic tribes and, and other mm-hmm. such tribes. So this transitionary period, we've got uh, a period of a lot of instability through um, uh, Viking raids, Islamic raids, and then things start to to level off. And at some point in the 12th century. I know my understanding is, you know, Europe comes into increasing contact with the Islamic world, um, you know, through Spain in particular, a lot of Greek thought gets brought back in. You have a Veroese uh, studying Aristotle and, and starting to help the process of translating it into Christian thought. So I see this period of, you know, reintroduction to Aristotle and that being a pivot point. How, how do you view that? Is that... That certainly was tremendously important on the um, on the uh, intellectual level, um, uh, on the academic level, if you will. Um, but uh, they also um, were uh, recovering um, the law tradition, the Roman legal tradition. Uh, the 12th century. So does that mean the 12th century is considered a time among medievalists anyway? The 12th century is considered like uh, the first Renaissance, if you will, uh, because you not only had the um, the re the reintroduction of Aristotle and much of Greek thought, but also of Roman law, and um, it was uh, that whole 
wonderful legal system, which was the Roman genius, if you will, uh, mm. is integrated into the church. And the, the church takes that up. And um, that's when you have the development of the um, of canon law. There are also developments in medicine, um, at least in, in passing on the wisdom. So you had um, development of the universities. The first universities in history were started in the 12th century. And they had um, they tended to have a common curriculum, a sort of common undergraduate curriculum, if you will, which was devoted to the reading of Aristotle. And then there was the graduate level work, which would be in theology or law or medicine. One quick question, and just to back up onto the uh, le- uh, the, the Roman legal system, are we are you talking about the idea of a republic uh, of a um, I don't know too much about Rome. I, was it a constitutional republic? I, I know that they had um, some form of representation and, and uh, I think a constitution. Is yeah, that correct? That the, there's definitely, um, I mean, Rome itself would be divided into the Republican period and the Imperial period. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so which, when you're talking about the legal system, I guess that's the first important question. Are we talking about um, the emperor system or the republic part of it? That they're getting uh, they make, I don't think they'd make a hard and fast distinction there because one of the um, one of the geniuses of Augustus, who was the you know the the successor to Julius Caesar and the the first um, I guess the second emperor but the first effective long lasting emperor, uh, one of his geniuses was to hide the fact that we were no longer a republic. <laughs> so there's a there's a continuous legal tradition um, and legal and political tradition that didn't have a significant break uh even at that at that dramatic change and that that whole system was codified by justinian in the sixth century so it was um uh there was a lot there are all kinds of ways in which laws and legal traditions were established sort of like common law in the british that was what was being rediscovered and re-implemented in the 12th century in the west Mm, okay, very interesting. Um, so I guess back to Aristotle. I should just then. say, I mean, important part of that is that is that just because it was an imperial system didn't mean that there weren't um, lots, lots, and lots and lots of legal rights <laughs> right. that that were maintained. Yeah, right. You you mean even though there was an emperor? Um, yeah. You know, I, from my recollection, there still is a senate, and there still are. Yes, laws and and protections for the individual that still right. exist. So this is, I'm sure, a novel concept in Christendom at the time, at least, um, and and a, a shift that is going to happen in how they look at the legal structure. Um, I think that there was also there is always in the church, um, the churches, uh, the the Catholic Church anyway, has always had a sense of of um, the the order is not something that's under anybody's whim. <laughs> so even though there's a pope in Rome, uh, he's not able to just change anything in the church he wants. So there's always been a sense of um, what we would call subsidiarity, local local uh, clerics, local churches, local monasteries. They all have their um, their 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 legal status, which can't just be poofed away by somebody at somebody's whim. How does that reconcile with 
things like the divine rights of kings, right? At this period, you have kings ruling over and yeah, um, that, they're not elected. The divine right. right of kings is an is a is a post medieval idea. Oh, okay. I mean, there's there the idea that the kings were sacred. That is something that came in um, particularly forcefully, I think, with Charlemagne in the ninth century, who was crowned emperor by the Pope. Um, and there was kings would usually be anointed by a bishop. So there was a sacred character to the political leader because of that. But the, the idea of the divine right of kings uh, is something that's really um, um, a kind of enlightenment notion, like the absolutist era in the 17th century. John Locke was writing against the people who were promoting the divine right of kings. And it was, you know, we're writing against it as a novelty in many ways. <laughs> so back to um, back to this reintroduction of of Aristotle. I'm very curious to hear how, that one of the original questions I asked is, do you think without Aristotle we would have seen uh, the the revolutions that happened ultimately? Um, what role do you think Aristotle plays in that? If if any, and and just the trajectory of Europe at the time that. Aristotle's introduced and his role in that. Yeah, I think that um, Aristotle brought in um, brought in a particular way the the idea and the experience of scientific understanding, um, not scientific necessarily in the way in, in the way we think of it today as. Um, all being experimentally and mathematically based, but scientific in the sense of having a body of an impressive body of knowledge and understanding that's all ordered in an intelligible way from first principles through careful arguments to a broad range of conclusions um, that have that have compelling force that have intellectually compelling force. So. Um, the idea that you can actually have logic, a scientific logic uh, that governs the way the mind works, uh, that you have uh, a scientific understanding of the cosmos, of the whole order of the universe. Um, those were, uh, Aristotle brought that in, particularly with regard to, you can understand nature, the natural world is not just random. <laughs> Uh, the natural world is not uh, just something immediately that God di dictates all the time. Um, but the natural world is intelligible and has cycles, and um, you can uh, you can account for it and anticipate it, and then work within your understanding of the natural world to improve um, to improve situ your situation. Those ideas started to come in with Aristotle, I think. And my understanding of Aristotle too is he's very much a, a this worldly thinker in the sense that he starts with perception and observation mm -hmm. as the the foundation is contrasted to maybe a more platonic view which is that what's really real is the world of the forms the supernatural world as opposed to what we experience through our senses and there's um, that contrast and I mean, that's how it would, a big part of the pivot point, as I see, because um, 
in order to do science, you, you have to start with the senses and, and perception. Um, would you agree with that? What, do you have any thoughts on that distinction between Plato and Aristotle and his influence? Um, Aristotle agreed with Plato that that the spiritual realm is is much more real, mm. um, much more substantive, um, and that there is a vast spiritual world out there. I mean, human beings are spiritual, and um, and there would be a vast realm of angelic beings that are completely spiritual. And of course, there's the one God, and that all of our Aristotle would agree that all of our efforts should be ordered to understanding and participating in that as much as possible. Where they disagree is that Aristotle said, but that doesn't mean that the world of the senses is an illusion or that the world of the senses is unintelligible, that it's full of contradictions. No, the, the, the natural world is understandable. And in fact, it's, it's something that has its own intelligible order that comes from the the spiritual realm, but that you can learn about that significantly and it's worth learning about through careful observation and thought. Mm. And um, did he say whether or not the path towards that spiritual world was through yes, uh, I, I the world you experience? Very, yeah, Is you want to add that, that, that you, as human beings, we fully enter into the spiritual realm, even the even the spiritual aspect of ourselves. Through, uh, we have to come through the sensible world in order to begin to look at the spiritual world. And, and I think that is a key distinction between Plato, because yeah. I recall recall about Plato's Plato thought the world of the forms was something you awaken to. It's present, dormant in your mind, um, but it's not through the uh, physical world that you acquire knowledge of the of, of the world of the forms, and so it sounds like um, that's a, a key distinction. Yeah, I think more or less. The, there's a Plato seemed to think that uh, you have to. It's engaging with your natural ideas that you come to. Uh, you begin to uncover your supernatural ideas, if you will. Um, so you definitely he'd agree that you have to start with natural things but more at least in some presentations more they're obstacles that you have to overcome right. than their lenses through which you can look right okay so that's a very interesting distinction because i i think at least from this this learnings i've done on just for example the history of astronomy i've seen the impact of the aristotelian way of thinking that it had on the subsequent revolutions in science, for example, that happened like they, they had to to start focusing more on what the world uniform circular motion until they kind of got rid of that. They couldn't they couldn't make the next leap in astronomy, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious how, you know, we, we have to wrap up soon. But um, do you see any conflict between that Aristotelian way of thinking and Christian thought at the time or prior to that, uh, I'm I'm sure it's also a bit a, a big oversimplification to just say Christian thought because I'm sure there are multiple yeah, schools definitely. of thought out yeah. there. Um, so, how do you see that? Is is there a pure Christianity that that existed prior to Aristotle? Is Aristotle completely reconcilable with it? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, 
Well, this is something that the Christendom struggled with in uh, in the 12th and 13th centuries, um, because Aristot Aristotelian habits led them led people to start to question, um, not just learn from the from the wise authors, but to begin to question them, to begin to put them in opposition to one another, sometimes in opposition to themselves. So the dialectical aspect of Aristotle's, um, of the training to get through Aristotle's work, uh, caused some co concern uh, at the, when he was, uh, when he was being revived. But um, overall, over the course of a century, um, through the help of people like Albert the Great and, and, and Thomas Aquinas, the the church saw that, oh, rightly understood, Aristotle's training and and wisdom is something that enhances our own understanding of, of God and of the sources of revelation. So um, that was, uh, yeah, I think that that was the dominant, that's, that was the dominant thing that came out of the Middle Ages and that was continued in the in the Christian schools and universities well into the, you know, getting into the 18th and 19th centuries. So one of the tricky parts I find with thinking about this or, or just trying to figure out how it's reconciled is um, I, I don't think Aristotle's mentioned in the Bible. Um, and no, nope. please correct me if I'm wrong. There. And so come into the Bible, but uh, I think that's about it. Uh, what was that? Who, who comes the in? Spartans do. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> but there's no, I, I don't think there's any Aristotle in the Bible. And so um, I wonder how this gets reconciled with the idea of dogma or the, maybe the tendency towards dogma. I, I think what you were just saying that I found interesting is that what was appealing is by adopting the Aristotelian way of thinking, it helped them approach the Bible in a new way and understand truths and mine it for truths in a, in a new way that they weren't able to do prior. Is it, did I capture that part correctly on some yeah, of the value you know that they, mm -hmm. they saw in it? And so the question I have though, is how does that not come into conflict when you um, maybe observe something with your senses that comes into conflict with something that's written in the Bible? Um, mm -hmm. What, how does somebody reconcile that? What is their source of truth when it's the Bible or maybe reality for lack of a better way to put it i think that when that sort of thing has occurred like with the galilean controversy um what ends up happening is they uh the church ends up thinking well we were misreading the scriptures <laughs> um mm. at least when you know when uh when that kind of natural study reveals something that was a contrary to what was thought before as the earth uh, the earth being in motion uh, and that being the source of the sun rising and setting then um, when that's well established then the, the 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 church will say oh we we were thinking that the scriptures were telling us how the sun moved or at least that was a that was uh, something that was implicit in our in our thought now that it's been brought to light, we say, oh, well, that's not what the scriptures were doing. They weren't they weren't teaching us that they were just speaking in the mode that was appropriate to the time and place. 
So kind of a greater sense of one of the things that's happened with the development of modern scientific understanding is a greater understanding of the liter the different literary forms that you find in the scriptures. And so um, a greater ability to see what's being taught by the scriptures versus what's uh, versus the language and the and the dressing that it's being spoken in. Very interesting. So there's a shift from thinking of taking the Bible necessarily literally at face value to um, appreciating maybe or accepting that we are trying to interpret the Bible and Aristotle gives us the best chance of interpreting it well, um, as opposed to somebody who may want to just read it verbatim um, and think that there's no interpretation or wiggle room in there. Well, there's always been a recognition that that some parts of the Bible are not meant to be taken literally. That uh, um, so, for instance, Augustine uh, Augustine would say, you know, it's it's kind of clear that Genesis is not telling us that there are actually seven literal days because there was no sun. So uh, there was no sun for the first three days. So it couldn't be talking about that. It must be mean something else. And um, uh, but I think what happened was there was an expansion of that sense, like um, uh, looking back at, say, the uh, the the history of the kingdom of Israel. Well, how much of this is is divine authority telling us that this king ruled at this time from, you know, from these dates to these dates? Uh, and how much of it is they're passing on the story using the information that they had available, but what they're really showing you is God's activity in all of that. Um, and so, you know, that kind of separation extended to more of the books than it than they had originally thought. Mm. And so this reintroduction of Aristotle really is... Um this new tool that they now now becomes available to them to better understand scripture, but also uh, the world around them. What was it? Is it fair to say it was a, a dramatic shift or is it a, you know, did it um, amp put more emphasis on, um, you know, not, I don't want to say subordinating, but giving priority to the senses over what is in scripture and just acknowledging that if, if there is a conflict, it must be our misunderstanding of the book, not a flaw in the book itself. Um, well, let's see, let me offer a little bit of correction there <laughs> because I, I think something you were interested in that I didn't touch, I haven't touched on yet is um, did Aristotle lead to the scientific revolution <laughs> mm. in some ways? He contributed to it by um, by by developing the logical um, structures and scientific approach to thought in general. In some ways, though, he hampered it because people ended up holding up Aristotle as an authority against their own senses, and so. Um, uh, it wasn't really until the 16th century, I think, and the 17th century that Aristotle's authority began to be challenged. And that, that um, not only to be challenged, but then the whole idea that the mind can achieve a, uh, insight into the spiritual realm, that was rejected. And, um, and so all that was looked at was the sensible. 
I think one distinction I'll make, though, on how I view it is, because uh, there's a great story I was reading recently on um, uh, as Galileo starting to make his early explorations into motion, mm-hmm. right? Aristotle had things to say about natural and, and violent motion. And um, one of the things that Galileo was criticized for was contradicting Aristotle. You know, Aristotle thought that two bodies would fall at the same speed and, or, or at, at different speeds that the heavier object would fall uh, faster. And Galileo famously goes on to pr- disprove that. And I think a distinction is important between certain conclusions Aristotle reached versus how he thought. And what I found very interesting about the Galileo uh, experience is that Galileo was being more Aristotelian than the um, people upholding Aristotle. I don't know mm-hmm. if, if you have thoughts on that, but, uh, you know, Galileo was going from what he could observe and applying Aristotle's philosophical system. But I look at that period as still transitionary where there's still dogma as being applied to Aristotle um, at this time and and people, you know, not being willing to challenge a conclusion of Aristotle's. Um, yeah, I think that that's that there's uh that there's, there's definitely truth in that is that the, um, William Harvey, who was a famous English physician, said, uh, look, you're you're uh, following Galileo and Aristotle against the uh, against their very warning that you have to <laughs> you have to see these things for yourself. Mm. Um, mm. So I think that there there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I wanted to say that the oh, one other thing to throw into this mix is that there came to be an important rejection of Aristotle on the philosophical level in terms of what whether there whether we can really have universal knowledge or not, whether universal knowledge actually transcends sense knowledge. Um, so William of Ockham kind of famously would say uh, introduced the idea of nominalism. Um, to say no, there there aren't universal ideas. That's not that's not anything that's we don't have anything that transcends the sense and imagination. Universal statements just come from the fact that we have one name that we apply to a whole bunch of different things. Mm. So that kind of thought was uh, involved in sh- in closing off the possibility that the human mind could could gain insight into the spiritual world or even worked in a significantly spiritual way, um, close that off. And so really hard, you know, hard and fast focused us on the material world and only the material world. Right. And then you start to get into uh, the real rise in skepticism and, um, but we will have to save that for another podcast. I'm sure okay. I'd be very right. interested to talk to you about that in more detail. But, um, but I think to to back up a little bit, what I I think I'm I'm hearing and and that makes sense to me is you have this reintroduction of Aristotle. You have, yes, on on some hand treating Aristotle dogmatically, but then uh, you have also just the um, influence of his philosophical system independent of maybe some of his conclusions on motion and and those ideas of how to look at the world uh, acquire knowledge from the world are certainly impactful on the revolutions that are to come as a consequence um is that a fair 
a fair thing to conclude? Yeah. And, and do, uh, do you think it could have happened? Is there anything innate in Christianity that had they studied the Bible long enough, um, they would have arrived at similar conclusions? Or is there something Aristotle contributed that isn't in there? I think that Aristotle's contrib contributions are very significant, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and let me know if that's not a fair question or oversimplification. I'm, um, I'm not trying to pigeonhole you into into something like that. Yeah, it's hard to um, it's hard to imagine what would happen uh, without that introduction to Aristotle. There is something though in the West that uh, even though in the East that Christian Empire had. Aristotle, they had Plato. They never lost mm. the Eastern side of things. They never lost all of that. Um, but the West was just always has been since partly uh, for a number of different reasons. I think the West has always been more energetic in saying we don't want to just rest in the books. We want to know the world and improve the world. Um, that's been that's been in the western psyche i think for from from the heart of the middle ages radiating out i couldn't think of a more beautiful way to put i think the spirit that uh, i think we share and that i think is essential to the kind of education we want to to form in young minds which is that um, this world is knowable and we want to learn about it and improve it mm -hmm. um, i think it to me, is this a, a part of the spirit of Aristotle and and, and what I see in uh, in this story? Uh, would, would is that a fair thing to say that we have in common? <laughs> that, I think that's. I think that's true. I, th I guess I'd say that the. But then the question would be: Is improving the world the most important thing we can do? Mm. And to what extent do we have to have ideals that transcend the world um, in order to even improve the world effectively? Right. And that is one of the things I've been grappling with uh, as I've uh, been getting to know more religious folks over the past few months is there's something very psychologically important in having a long-term ideal that you're orienting yourself to. And without that, it becomes very difficult to stay firm on certain principles. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't yet have... Uh, the full response as an atheist to that question mm -hmm. <laughs> on how to how to have more people adopting that kind of perspective. Um, well, I could keep talking to you for a long time. I have tons more questions. I think we need to do a whole nother episode on just the Enlightenment because I'm very curious to get your thoughts on that and kind of post-Renaissance thought. And I, I think it would be a nice conversation because I think in the Enlightenment period, our seeds planted that are maybe sowing our destruction right now uh, or, or responsible for a lot of the decline we're seeing, but that would be a whole other conversation, I think. Um, yeah. Andrew, would you like to direct anyone to where they can learn more about the work you're doing? Uh, uh, if they want to learn more about you or, or I, I know you're involved with a number of projects uh, that we'll, we'll mm -hmm. link to in our description, but is there anything in particular you want to call um, out? Well, the Boethius Institute for the Advancement of Liberal Education is something that we are, uh, we're gathering fellows like Joseph who, who care passionately about reforming education and want to deepen their own understanding of the classical liberal arts tradition in order to foster that. 
And then the Arts of Liberty Project website has a lot of curricular materials that help that help along those lines. Uh, that's artsofliberty.org. So boetheusinstitute.org and artsofliberty.org. Yeah, and we'll put links to both of those. And yeah, as Andrew mentioned, I'm a fellow at the Boethius Institute, and I'm very the, the work they're doing there and at Arts at Liberty to um, help identify this important knowledge and make it more available so that we can, you know, try and preserve civilization. I think is wh whether our listeners are religious or not. I think it, this is the most important thing we could be thinking about. Um, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. God bless.